If you've ever watched a TV show or a movie that involves the ocean and people drifting on the ocean in a life raft or swimming, lost at sea, one of the things that you're reminded of is don't drink the water. And the reason is because the seawater is seven times, it has seven times more salt in it than the body can assimilate. It means that when you drink seawater, it is possible to die of thirst. Because I'm told that drinking seawater forces the kidneys to deal with the uh, overabundance of salt, demands more water to flush it through the system, and the more seawater you drink, the more thirsty you become. And eventually, as I say, you die of thirst. Sin works the same way. Sometimes when we're invaded by sin in our personal lives, one of the things we begin to experience, particularly with the sin of lust, is that we pursue lust because we think it's what we want to satisfy the emptiness on the inside. But the very thing that we crave, the sin we desire, will eventually kill us and the things that we love the most in this life. We pursue more and more, but the thirst is never satisfied. And everything that we hold near and dear to us, oftentimes is destroyed. In our study of the book of David this morning, as we've seen not only this morning but in the past, David has ups and downs. There have been some mountaintops experiences that we have enjoyed with David, But there are also some valleys, and this morning I draw your attention to one of the deepest valleys that you find in David's life, not only David's life, but probably the entire Old Testament. It's a time when David drinks deep of the seawater of spiritual lust. And as a result, we find that David experiences the death of the things many of the things that he holds most dear to life. It starts with a calm evening, a night when he can't sleep, and in his restlessness he gets out of his bed, steps out of his bedroom, and walks the rooftop of the king's palace, and he experiences something that night that begins the slow process of destruction that neutralizes his relationship with God because of lust and affects deeply the people he cares about the most, his own family. And so this morning, I want to draw your attention with a change in routine. Chapter 11, verse 1, there's a change in routine as David comes to the spring of the year. He allowed his mind to be invaded with sinful thoughts, which gave way to the appalling sin of adultery. Follow along as I read, beginning at verse 1. 2 Samuel chapter 11 and verse 1. Then it happened in the spring, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Reba, but David stayed in Jerusalem. 
Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers and took her. And when she came to him, he lay with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. And the woman conceived. And she sent and told David and said, I'm pregnant. So that's the way the story begins. I want you to notice in these opening 27 verses of this section, in fact, we may not get any further than chapter 11, and we'll rush through chapter 12. But in these open 27 verses, we have what I'm calling the place where David succumbed to the sin of adultery. And the deed is outlined in the first five verses of our text. Verse 1 tells us that there's a change in David's routine. We're told that in the spring of the year, when countries normally go to battle, and that was true because in the wintertime, there was lots of precipitation, lots of rain, and the roads that that, uh, soldiers traveled sometimes would become impassable. And so during the wintertime, there wasn't much military activity among the nations. Springtime also brought an increase in vegetation, so there was more to feed the soldiers along the way, particularly when they were in unfamiliar territory. So spring was the time if uh, a country was going to engage in an expansion program, spring was the time that soldiers would begin to march and invade. So there's a change in routine, and that means that David is staying home. David normally is involved in the military campaigns himself. In fact, for years he's led those campaigns. But he's been king now for 20 years, probably in his early to mid-50s, and he's earned the right to stay home and enjoy the beauty of the palace that he's built for himself and for his noblemen. In in verse 2 of chapter 11, we're told that he became restless one night, probably restless on many nights, because normally he would be engaged in some type of military conquest, but he's restless because this feeling of adrenaline is not there, and so he's looking for some kind of conquest because he can't sleep. He's restless. And he gets up and decides to go for a walk, verse 2. And as he's walking around the palace roof, which was normal in those days, many times people went to the roof because that was a place of coolness. It was a place many times that was decorated and made comfortable for kings and noblemen to hold meetings and to socialize. David is moving about the roof, and he notices a beautiful woman. The text says the woman was very beautiful in appearance. Literally, the expression is, she was beautiful of, a, she was beautiful of appearance, very. 
The Bible doesn't put the word very in its uh, description of people very often. And so in this particular case, as the writer is clarifying the beauty of this woman, it's not just, she's not just beautiful, she is very beautiful, indicating that she's captured David's eye. Verse 2, his eyes have been arrested by what he sees, and verse 3 tells us that he made inquiry. He begins to respond to what he's seen. He sets action in motion and, dis- and uh, discovers some things about her, finds out a bit about her family, and finds out that she is married to Uriah the Hittite. Now by the time verse 2 takes place where he sees the woman and verse 3 takes place where he inquires, we are well on the way of pursuing the sin of lust. It is built up in his mind and he has now acted on what he has seen. And that's where lust begins to control us and dominate us And we begin the downward spiral of destruction. David has drank deep from the ocean, the seawater of spiritual lust. In Kent and Barbara Hughes' book, Liberating Ministry from the Success Syndrome, they make an interesting comment about lust. When lust takes control... God is quite unreal to us. When lust takes control, God is quite unreal to us. When I read that phrase, I thought about it for a while. That is really true of sin. When we respond to the invasion of sin in our personal lives, the more we contemplate the object of temptation the less and less God becomes to us. The further we drift from Him, the further we drift from the principles of His Word, we don't think about what we're doing and we don't think about the consequences of what we're pursuing. Kent and Barbara continue in their book as they write, What a world of wisdom there is in this. When we are in the grip of lust, the reality of God fades. The longer King David gazed, the less real God became. Not only was his awareness of God diminished, but in the growing darkness he lost control of who David was, his holy call, his frailty, and the sure consequences of sin. My brothers and sisters, make no mistake about it. When you and I are invaded by sin and dominated by lust, God becomes less and less real to us, and in the vacancy we recreate God in our own image, we redefine His expectation in light of what we want, and we actually become convinced that what we're doing, in some cases is pleasing to the Lord. And when we're convinced of that, we are well on our way to destruction. That's what I want you to see this morning. 
When God is rejected and lust is taken on, God is removed the more and more we're consumed by it and we begin to rationalize our sin. This marriage was never God's will in the first place, we say to ourselves. God's will for me is to be happy. And certainly he would not deny me anything which is essential to my happiness. We rationalize our, to ourselves, how can something which has brought me so much good be wrong? The bottom line is love, we say to ourselves, and I'm acting on the basis of the highest law. Or we might say to ourselves, Christians and their judgmental attitudes, they make me sick. You're judging me, and you're a greater sinner than I am. A person consumed in lust will say to himself, Once we embark on the slippery slope of lust, we pursue passion, we drink deep from the seawater that will never satisfy us, and that's the condition David is going to find himself in, seeking to secure wives, the number of wives that will never be enough for him, <clears throat> will never satisfy the emptiness that he's created inside. And the thing that I want you to understand this morning, in your case and in mine, is that once we've come to this point in our personal experience, there's never enough magazines to read to satisfy that emptiness. There's never enough videos on the internet that we can pursue that will satisfy and slake that thirst. There's never enough TV shows, romance TV shows that we can watch that will satisfy that emptiness. Once we have seen, we have contemplated, and we have acted on what we have seen, God in the scriptures become less and less real to us, and the God we recreate becomes more real. And that's the tragedy of David and his experience here in 2 Samuel chapter 11. The Bible is very clear and consistent about this predicament. The believer is to do one thing once he sees and before he begins to inquire, before he begins to contemplate what he has seen, the Bible is consistently clear. What is it when it comes to the temptation of immorality? Run. Run. Every time it's the same. Victory over temptation like this, victory over lust is clear and simple from God's Word. Because of what Jesus did for us on the cross, because of the sacrifice of Himself, He has made the sin of lust easy to overcome when we engage in God's will. When we're confronted, we run. When Jesus, excuse me, when Joseph was propositioned by Potiphar's wife, the scripture tells us in the book of Genesis chapter 39, he ran from her. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 18, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, Run from immorality. 
2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 22, flee from youthful lusts. Yes, the scripture is clear and consistent. And David was smart enough to know that. But in that moment where he saw and then inquired, Jehovah of the Old Testament became less and less real to him. And his desire and his lust took more and more control. In verses 4 and 5, he's ensnared. Again, it's, the scripture says, And David sent messengers and took her, and when she came to him, he lay with her, and when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. In verse 5, the scripture tells us, Word came to David within a short period of time. She was with child. There are three significant verbs, and you've probably heard this before in the teaching on David's fall with Bathsheba. Verse 2, verse 3, and verse 4, three significant verbs. He saw, verse 2. He inquired, verse 3. When he inquired, he found out, her family, and also the fact that she was married to Uriah the Hittite. It's almost like the messengers that come back and report to David tell David, this is her family affiliation, and you also need to know she's been spoken for. She is married to one of your generals, Uriah the Hittite, one of your most loyal friends, one of your confidants, and fellow soldiers. Normally that would be enough to cause a person to stop. But when controlled by lust, he's dealing with issues that surpass his ability in that context to stop. David blew through the stop signs. But there were some hints along the way that indicated to us that David had a problem in this particular area of his life. If you'll take a moment and turn back to 2 Samuel chapter 5. 2 Samuel chapter 5. I want you to notice in particular verse 13. 2 Samuel chapter 5, we'll start at verse 12. And David realized that the Lord had established him as king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. David becomes aware that he is special to God. And because he's special to God, he is special to God's people. He is a significant personality in Israel's history. And when a man begins to think of himself as someone unique and special, maybe even a, a person above the law. But in this particular case, David thinks to himself, verse uh, 13, Meanwhile, David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem. A person who thinks that he's significant sometimes will infringe on the law of God and become convinced that what he is doing is justified because 
other kings in other countries are doing this all around him. Hey, everyone else is doing it. And therefore, it must be right for David. And what's interesting to me is the fact that people must have thought to themselves, well, this is David, the man after God's own heart. He's the king. And the king, who is so victorious in battle and has brought peace and tranquility to the nation of Israel... And now for the first time in years, Israel has suppressed its enemies and they are now living in a period of peace. Surely a man like this wouldn't do wrong. Therefore, we can overlook this matter of adding wives and concubines to his harem. So we saw it in chapter 5, verses 12 and 13. We also saw it in chapter 8. Turn there if you would. Second Samuel chapter eight. I want you to notice in particular verse thirteen. So David made a name for himself when he returned from killing eighteen thousand Arameans in the Valley of Salt. David made a name for himself, adding to his sense of personal worth, adding to, in his own mind, a sense of significance, and cause, moral cause, to compromise the laws of God. Yes, there are some hints that we have seen relative to David's problem of sin, in particular, the sin of lust. So the scripture says he saw, verse 2. The second verb is inquired, verse 3. And the third verb is took, verse 4. He saw, he inquired, he took. Solomon, his son, will write under the inspiration of the Spirit in Proverbs 9, verse 17. Stolen water is sweet. And the bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her quests are the depths of Sheol. This is not the first time we've seen this pattern of seeing, inquiring, and taking. It started in the first book of the Old Testament. Scripture tells us, that when Eve was tempted by the devil and told that eating of the tree was appropriate, the scripture says in verse 6, she saw that the tree was good for food. She desired because she believed it was capable of making her wise. And she took from its fruit and ate. She saw, she desired, she took. I want to say, folks, that that's helpful information to me and hopefully to you. Satan is not very creative. He's rather simple in his strategies and techniques. And if you and I are aware of the invasion of sin, particularly the, the sin of lust... 
And we are aware of the fact that it begins with looking and then desiring if we can break it, if we can stop it, if we can run between seeing and desiring, we can stop the downward spiral. The Bible's consistent in the way to deal with the subject of lust, regardless of what the object might be. Well, in verses 6 through 12, then, of chapter 11, we have the deceit of adultery. Verse 6, we are told that David makes an effort to cover up. Then David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. So So Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked concerning the welfare of Joab and the people and the state of the war. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and a present from the king was sent out after him. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. Now when David, when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in temporary shelters. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go down to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? By your life and the life of your soul, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Stay here today also, and tomorrow I will let you go. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. The deceit of adultery. David reasons to himself, What I need to do here is make this look like it didn't happen, or at least didn't involve me. His attempt at cover-up is to call Uriah from the front battle lines where Israel is engaged in conflict with the Ammonites. He uh, sends a note to Joab, the, the, the man in charge, telling him to send Uriah home, verses 6 and 7. If somehow David can cover himself and make this look like a normal thing, then he will be extricated from any consequence himself. So Uriah's called home from the conflict. Verses 8 through 12, Uriah refuses to cooperate. David says, why don't you go home and relax with your wife for a few days? Verse 9, he refused. Now, some have speculated that maybe Uriah knew what was going on. It wouldn't have been a secret among David's noblemen and messengers of what he had done. And it could have been that they talked among themselves and Uriah got wind of what had happened. And he's trying to, well, he's actually making a stand against the king. So the king can't successfully cover up what he's done. But the scripture doesn't tell us that. It's speculation, an interesting thought. But the reality of it is we don't know what was going through Uriah's mind other than what appears to be a dedication to the task at hand. He was a good soldier and showed more discipline 
than David. So in verses 6 and 7, David tries to cover up. Uriah refuses to cooperate, verses 8 through 12, which brings us then to the dementia of adultery. We move from the deceit to David's dementia. Verse 13. Now David called him, and he ate and drank before him, and he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie in his bed with his Lord's servant, but he did not go down to his house. <coughs> so David makes a, uh, a concerted effort to try again to cause uh, Uriah to go home and spend the night with his wife. Excuse me just a moment. There's something in the air <clears throat> that's affecting my voice. So David gets him drunk, and hopefully when he loses all sense of his faculties, he'll do what David desires and uh, lie with his wife. And what appears to be, uh, what, what appears to be, uh, what, it would cause, it, cause the situation to indicate that Uriah was the father of the child. So David is getting desperate. Again, Uriah doesn't cooperate. Verse 13 said he spent the night with his servants. So David sent him back to battle, verses 14 to 17, with a devious letter sent to Joab. And in that letter, Joab was instructed to put Uriah toward the battle front. And the instruction was to put him toward the battle front and then back the soldiers off caused Uriah to be cut off from support. David's plan was to destroy Uriah. Verse 17 tells us that the battle front was near the Amorite archers. As they stood on the wall, they fired arrows down at the Israeli soldiers, and we are told that the arrows caught several men, and one of the number was Uriah. So the report comes that, verse 17, that several have been killed, including Uriah. David received the word from Joab that several several soldiers were dead, and that included Uriah. Verses 18 to 20 indicate that the message was delivered to David. And as a result of the message being delivered to David, David was convinced that his situation was resolved. The scripture tells us in verses 22 to 25 that when the message was delivered, Bathsheba mourned over her husband's loss. And then David took her as, as his wife, which is similar to what he had done earlier with Abigail. Now it would appear on the outside that David has been successful in covering himself. But you will notice an interesting phrase in verse 27. But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. It was evil in the sight of the Lord. To the outside it appeared that David had gotten away with it. But the reality of it was God saw And God was not pleased. 
And that's a reminder to each of us that sometimes on the outside it appears that we've gotten away with what we've done. But God knows the heart of the man who has yielded to the sin of lust. In chapter 12, verses 1 to 13, and we're just going to go through this quickly, David surrendered to confrontation and confession. Notice verse 1. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom, and was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. (coughs) We have in verses 1 to 12, Nathan's confrontation. The confrontation of Nathan. Now this has been probably a year from the time that David has sinned with Bathsheba. My hunch is David has felt extremely uncomfortable during these months. And I believe that one of the marks of a child of God is when they're engaged in a sinful practice and that sin has remained covered. One of the things that happens to a child of God is personal, spiritual distress. I believe David was extremely uncomfortable. In fact, we get that impression when we read... what he wrote in Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4, upon a reflection of this experience. David said, When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Selah. David has been feeling uncomfortable because of what he's done. And the Lord is very aware that the man after his own heart is feeling this distress. And is it possible that in God's grace and love toward David that he sent Nathan the prophet to release him from his predicament and give him the opportunity to repent of his sin and own his lust? So Nathan spoke the parable in verses 1 through 6, and in verses 5 and 6, you will notice that David is enraged with the story that Nathan tells. He's convinced that the person, the rich man, who stole the lamb and slaughtered it is a person who ought to be judged and even killed. But then we read in verse 7, Nathan then said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, It is I who anointed you king over Israel, and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house, Saul's house, and your master's wives into your care. And I gave you the house of Israel and Judah, and if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. 
David, you had it made. God is saying, I gave you everything that you could have imagined, and if you would have wanted more, I would have gladly given you more. In this confrontation, Nathan speaks for God. And as a result of what David has done, verses 9 through 12, he outlines the consequences of David's sin. He says that Uriah's marriage has been invaded by David. And the sword would now be brought to David's home in verse 10. And the consequences would be born in David's family, verses 11 and 12. As far as the baby was concerned, verse 14, the baby's going to die. David, you're never going to hold that baby in your arms because he's going to die. And David finally owned the consequences of his sin. We have in verse 13 the confession of David. I believe that God's grief in a man or a woman's heart when he owns his sin is relief relieved from an incredible burden that oftentimes he carries. In fact, that marks the difference between a child of God and one who's not. A person who's not a child of God doesn't think that much about what he or she has done makes no difference one way or the other. But a child of God who is ministered to by the Spirit, I'm convinced will never feel, uncom- will never feel comfortable and free until the sin is exposed and restitution is made with God. If you're here this morning and you've got a secret that no one else knows, maybe you're living in a relationship and experiencing something with another woman or another man, you will never find relief until you're exposed if you're a child of God. On the other hand, if you're not, You don't care all that much about the consequences of what you've done. You've created your own God, and your own God is completely comfortable with what you've done. And you choose to live a lie without a whole lot of distress. So the confrontation of Nathan, verses 1 to 12, the confession of David, verse 13 kind of helps us understand Psalm 51, verses 3 and 4. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak, and blameless when you judge. So we move from David's surrender to confrontation with confession to the third movement of this story, verses 14 to 25, David submitted to the consequences of his sin. The consequences of his sin involved death, verses 14 to 19, and distress, verses 20 to 23. 
The section concludes verses 24 and 25 with the birth of Solomon. I won't comment on that. Let me wrap it up with a couple of concluding thoughts. Number one, the invasion of sin requires immediate, uncomplicated admission. When you are invaded by sin, particularly the sin of lust, the best thing to do is to own it right now. And in a few moments, we're going to pray. And I'm going to urge you before the Lord to own it if you're living in that prison this morning. You can be set free by the forgiveness of Jesus Christ that he appropriated for you on the cross when he paid the penalty for your sin and mine. The invasion of sin requires immediate, uncomplicated admission. It's not your wife's fault. It's not your family's fault. It's no, one, it's no one's fault other than your own. And you, as a child of God, must own it like David did and admit it before the Lord. Secondly, the invasion of sin requires a complete break. A complete break. Remember, the key to dealing with this kind of sin is run. Flee. Move away from the situation. Don't place yourself in a situation where you know you are weak. Scripture says run. Number three, the invasion of sin requires a humble and broken spirit. For the first time, perhaps in a long time, it's important for you to see yourself before a holy God. It's important for you and I to understand that sin breaks the heart of our Lord. He's called us to a higher standard. He's called us to a life of holiness. And until we readjust our thinking, our values, and our conduct in harmony with his call to holiness, Apart from a broken spirit and a humble heart, there's no release. There's no resolution to the sin. And the last thing I would say, number four, is the invasion of sin, the sin of lust, requires an embrace of God's forgiveness and affirmation. It's incredibly important when we understand that Jesus died for us on the cross, that our sin has been forgiven, that God has, has absorbed the consequences of your sin. There may be some realities that you need to deal with in your relationship with other people, perhaps in your marriage, with your family, with your job, with your friends. You may have to deal with some natural consequences, but spiritually, as far as the issue between you and God is concerned, God has cleansed you when you confess. When you respond appropriately to the convicting work of the Spirit of God, as far as He's concerned, the matter is resolved. But there may be natural consequences that you need to deal with as a result of what you've done. 
but there is, no, there is nothing like the relief of knowing that the matter's in the open. There's nothing like the free, clean air of knowing that between you and God the sin, the sin has been confronted and resolved. As we close the service this morning, I don't know what the Lord would say, what he would speak to you, to you relative to the challenges of your own Christian experience. Lust is a dreadful thing. And that when we engage in the sin of lust, our concept of God becomes smaller and smaller. And the reality of self and what we want becomes bigger and bigger. And we drink freely at the salt water of sin, only to discover the more we drink, the thirstier we become. We're never satisfied. And the thirst that's created with lust is the thirst that kills us and kills everything around us that has value and meaning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this story rivets our, and draws our attention because it's so real. It touches where we live. Lord, you know better than anyone else that the environment that we live in causes us to be surrounded and potentially invaded every day by the evil of sin that draw our attention, trying to convince us of things that we need, trying to touch those things inside, those desires created by God, desires that we're tempted to satisfy in the name of self. Lord, I pray that you would keep your people clean and pure. I pray, Lord, that when we see those things, that we will immediately be reminded of our relationship with you, that the truth would settle over our thinking, and you would strengthen us to turn away, to move on, to flee. Lord, I pray that you would be with those perhaps in the audience who are in bondage today to pornography, to lustful activity as it relates to money or things, people who believe that the acquisition of stuff, of power, of people, Lord, I pray that you would give them freedom that comes through confession and repentance. And as we close this service this morning, I believe that it's appropriate for you to respond to what the Spirit of God has spoken to you about. Maybe an issue that's unresolved, an issue of lust, maybe it's something else. But I believe from David's experience, recorded in God's Word for purpose and design, speaking to your heart this morning, you need to talk to the Lord. You pray and then I'll close.
As we close the service this morning, Lord, we thank you for speaking to each of us. We thank you for the victory that you give us in Jesus Christ. As we go out into the week, we ask, Lord, that you would continually remind us of your desires for us to be conformed to the likeness of Christ, which means that we need to think, we need to act different from people in this world. I pray, Lord, that you would give us strength, that you would surround us with your truth, your grace, and your mercy, and that you would bring us safely into your presence as we anticipate that day that you will come to receive us to yourself. Help us to take the battle seriously. Help us to take the conflict that we will be engaged in until that moment that we are ushered into your eternal presence. Help us to take it seriously. Help us to arm ourselves appropriately. For your honor and your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. <clears throat> And Psalm 19, verse 14, has significance to us once again this morning. Our prayer for this week, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. God bless you this week.